please turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 34. That's me. Um, I was four years old when I learned how to ride a bike. This is in Michigan at Married Student Housing. Um, my dad was there working on a PhD. This was actually the first day that the training wheels came off. Remarkably, my parents caught a picture of me riding a bike when the training wheels came off for the very first day. Um, you know, now we love digital photos these days, don't we? It's <laughs> the best we can do. But I'm glad to have that picture captured because there's a lot more to this story than you actually see. Now, in front of me, there's, a, there's an enormous field. I mean, it, especially as a little kid, it just it felt huge. It was amazingly large. Um, but when I got on my bike for the first time, without training wheels, I, I didn't know how to use the brakes. I didn't know how to steer. I just knew how to pedal. You know, and that pedaling really kept me going uh, balance-wise and everything. And so I, I pedaled, and then I pedaled faster. Remember, this is the first day that I got on my bike, no training wheels. And what you don't see outside of the picture, if you just kind of move to the right here, is in this enormous open field, there's one tree. <laughs> and so I got on, and I started pedaling, and, and I was pedaling faster, and I was pedaling faster, and I was pedaling faster, and I was aimed right at the tree, and I couldn't use brakes, and I couldn't steer, and so it was inevitable. And what you don't see in this picture is the end of the story is I went straight at the tree, didn't veer, and I hit the tree, the one tree in the field, and just crashed. I was yard sale. I was everywhere, spread out, and it it hurt, and, you know, of course, got up, dusted myself up, and got back on the bike, right? No. Actually, (laughs) I'd love to tell you, it was like, I'm introing with this real courageous story. I didn't get back on my bike again for two years. (laughs) So I rode one day. And that was it. For two years, I didn't get back on my bike. Well, we moved to Oregon, and uh, I, I got back on the bike. And man, that, at that point in time, I just I took off. I loved riding my bike. I, I mean, I loved it. Once I figured it out, it was awesome. And I would get up really early every morning. In fact, one morning, my parents got up, and I was, I was gone. They looked at my room. I was, they didn't know where I was. They're searching everywhere in the house. They're getting nervous. They went out in the garage. My bike was gone. So I waited outside for a minute, and there I came. You know, and I had been riding for about an hour. I'd just been doing laps, you know, (laughs) six-year-old in our neighborhood because we had a loop, and I could do laps. And pretty soon I got really good, and what I would do is I could ride our entire neighborhood without my hands down the streets. And so I would ride all the way around, lap after lap after lap without my hands, and, and that went on great, actually, until I, I turned on a wet day and slid right in the middle of a four-way intersection. And then my parents said, you need to use your hands. <laughs> Learning a new skill can be really fun, can't it? It can be really exciting, exhilarating. It can also be exceptionally frustrating. It's when it doesn't come real quickly or when you crash at first, you get discouraged and you want to stop. I think that happens to a lot of us with prayer. In all of my years as a pastor, whenever I've asked someone, how's your prayer life? I've never, ever had anyone say to me, great, couldn't be better. I've never, ever had someone answer me that way. In all the years that I've walked with the Lord and people have asked me that question, I have never answered, great, couldn't be better. Instead, most of us kind of look at our feet and we kind of, it's not too great. And we feel ashamed and a little bit embarrassed. And then we do nothing, right? We don't do anything to fix that. 
We just stay ashamed, embarrassed until the next time somebody asks us, how's your prayer life? And we answer exactly the same way. And so what I say to us is, let's stop that. Okay? All right? This morning, let's say 2013, we will grow in prayer. Number one priority. So the next time somebody asks us, we can say, growing. Not perfect, but making progress. Growing in prayer. Next four weeks, we are going to learn from the master of prayer. We're going to learn from the greatest prayer ever. We're going to look at the life of prayer uh, of Jesus. And some lessons that we can learn. You know, I do find it remarkable that uh, Jesus with his 12 disciples, he, he did all kinds of amazing stuff in front of them. He taught like no one else had ever taught before with authority. Crowds were stunned. They were awed. He uh, raised people from the dead. He made the blind to see and the lame to walk. And yet his disciples never asked him, teach us to heal, teach us to raise the dead, teach us to preach. They just said, teach us to pray. Because when Jesus prayed, it was not like anything they had ever heard. Which, if you think about it, is remarkable because the disciples grew up in a praying culture. They had heard prayers at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They had heard prayers when they had gone to synagogue. They had heard prayers when they had gone to the temple. They were surrounded with a praying culture. And then Jesus prayed and they said, we know nothing about prayer. Could you start over with us and teach us to pray? So we're going to take a few weeks and learn from Jesus and hopefully make some steps of progress with Jesus in prayer. I want you to read with me, beginning in Mark Chapter 14, let's read verse 34. Let's start in verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Three observations that I want to make about Jesus in prayer. The first is when Jesus prayed, it was intensely personal. Abba. Daddy, I think one of the things that arrested the disciples' attention was that Jesus prayed to God as if he knew God. God was his father, his personal father, his daddy. This is how Jesus prayed. Jesus Jesus hated pretense in prayer. There was no superficiality in Jesus' prayer. When he heard the Pharisees pray and they prayed, Beautiful prayers, long, flowery prayers. It made Jesus sick. It made him angry. So that is exactly how you should not pray. Even though those are the people you've been looking to as the model of your prayer, there is not sincerity in their prayer. It is not a personal, deep relationship with God. They pray for show, and that made Jesus crazy. Prayer is, first and foremost, for the believer, a personal relationship with God. See, great illustrations of this throughout the Psalms, one of my personal favorites, Psalm 63. 
David says, oh God, you are my God. I long for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. David says, how I feel towards you right now, Father, is as if I'm in the desert and, and I haven't had a drink forever and I'm, I'm parched, I'm dried up. God, I need you more than I need water to drink. Jesus' prayers, David's prayers were personal. They were passionate because David knew God. Jesus knew God personally. The prayer that we're going to talk about for the next four weeks assumes that you know God personally, that he is in fact your father. But that may not be the case. It may be this morning, the God the Father is calling out to you and he's saying, I want you to be my child. It may be that God the Father is calling out to you and saying, you don't know me yet because you don't know my son and you need to believe in my son. He's the one way that you can have access to me. See, the moment that you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died on the cross to pay for your sins and that he was raised from the dead so that you could have life. The moment that you believe that, God adopts you into his family and he is forever your father. And you forever have perfect and complete and full access to God through Jesus Christ. And that may be the most important thing that you could do this morning. Just say, God, I want to be part of your family. I believe that Jesus died for me. The moment that you do that, you become into the family of God and you have the opportunity to grow in intimacy Deeper and deeper and deeper in your relationship with God. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke now and see what that might look like. Luke chapter 11 and verse 11. As I was going through each of the passages in the Gospels this week that Jesus talks about prayer or he prays, uh, one of the things I noticed was that whenever he's giving instruction on prayer, Somewhere in that context, he's going to talk about prayer in terms of God's character, particularly in terms of God's character as a father. Read with me chapter 11, verse 11. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit the greatest gift to those who ask him? Now, I read that, and I think to myself, I bet the children who are sitting around probably just laugh. They, they probably immediately got his point. They're like, yeah, my dad wouldn't give me a snake. My dad wouldn't give me a scorpion. I, you know, the adults probably were, were confused. Right? <laughs> what is he talking about? Snakes and scorpions? The kids are like, no, no, daddy, you don't give me bad gifts. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what God is like. So I tried to imagine this week. I want you to imagine with me, particularly your parents. Think for a moment about, about how you think people ought to pray. Right? In other words, think about uh, the best prayers you've ever heard. Once you say, wow, man, that, that's a prayer right there. Imagine that kind of prayer. Now, now imagine your children talking to you like that. Okay, I wrote one out. I just was trying to imagine what that would sound like if my kids talked to me that way. It sounds something like this. Dearest earthly father, couldst thou supply my need of a refill of milk in your good timing and only if it be according to your will? For thou art gracious, kind, benevolent, and powerful to provide all of my earthly needs, especially milk. 
According to your perfect character, in the name of your beautiful and excellent spouse and my nurturing, caring mother, amen. I mean, just imagine, you know, if, if our kids prayed or spoke to us like that, we, we, we just, well, that's ridiculous. That's not personal. And they're our children and they know us and they should know that we love them and want to give them what they need. First quality that we see in Jesus' prayers is it was intensely personal. There was no show whatsoever. Second, when Jesus prayed, it was his highest priority. Jesus knew that he needed communication with the Father so bad that he, he pushed aside all distractions. He pushed everything aside so that he could have communion with the Father. John chapter 8, verse 28, I think is a really remarkable verse. Jesus speaking, and he said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative but I speak just what the Father taught me. This phrase shows up at least like five or six times in the Gospel of John. I do nothing on my own initiative. I find that truly remarkable. Jesus said, I don't do anything on my own. Nothing. So when we see Jesus teaching, it's because the Father told him to teach. Father said, teach these people and teach them on this topic. And when we see Jesus going to one village and bypassing another, it's because God told him, go to this village and bypass another. When Jesus is healing some people and not healing others, it's because God, his heavenly father said, heal here, don't heal here. Move here, don't move here. Teach this, don't teach this. Jesus knew that he had to be in communion with the father because everything he did was in dependence upon the father. So if you read through the gospels sequentially, And chronologically, you notice this. First, Jesus began ministry in prayer. First thing we see Jesus doing, he is baptized by John and it says, and he was praying. And he comes up out of the water and he is praying. And what is prayer? It's conversation with God. He's having a conversation with God. And God speaks back to him and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When Jesus launched ministry, we see him praying. He sustained his entire ministry through prayer. Mark chapter 1 says Jesus got up early in the morning. When it was still very dark, he departed, he went out to a deserted place, and there he spent time in prayer. And we're told over and over and over again, Jesus got up early and he went to the wilderness. He got up early and he went to the wilderness. And, you know, there's a part of me that I just, I just hate this verse because I just don't like the morning. You know, I like it once I'm up, but I don't like getting up. You know, you understand the distinction, right? Once I actually pay the, the price and the pain goes away of actually getting out of bed, then I'm glad I got out, but I hate it. I hate it, especially even when it's just a little bit cold or even a little bit warm. or even, I just don't like get out of bed, I, you know? <laughs> so we say to ourselves, yeah, but Jesus was a morning person, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, he... He's eternal, he's timeless, and so morning doesn't feel like morning to Jesus. It's all, it all just feels the same to him because he's, he's, he's a, an eternal morning guy. I want you to turn with me in the Gospels, and I, I'm going to remove that as a potential argument for us. Mark chapter 6. Okay, Mark chapter 6. I find the only time it's easy for me to get up and pray in the morning is when I'm on a missions trip or retreat when people are watching. 
Okay, Mark chapter 6. Let's start in verse 45. This is right after Jesus has fed uh, the 5,000. It's 5,000 men, so it's you know, maybe 10,000 people. He's just fed thousands. He's been doing miracles and teaching all day long. He's, he's really, really tired. Verse 45, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Now, in your margins, you should make this notation. Fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Okay, So, Jesus has done an entire day of ministry. He's, he's done many miracles. He's fed thousands. He's been teaching. His voice is tired. His body is tired. He sends the disciples away so he can pray. Till three in the morning, or, or four in the morning, or five in the morning, or six in the morning. He has just spent hours. Jesus isn't just a morning person or a night person. He's all the time sensitive to the fact that he must be with the Father. He prayed early, he prayed late. On both of these occasions, he's praying in private, but he also prayed with people. Turn with me to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Verse 18, Luke chapter 9, verse 18, it says, And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. It's kind of a weird phrase in English, isn't it? It happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Sometimes when Jesus prayed alone, he was alone alone. He just went completely by himself. Other times he went alone, but he Let his disciples be with him and listen and watch and learn. Just a few verses later, just hours later, he went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He brought Peter and James and John with him and he is praying. What he's he's doing is he's, he's having conversation with his father and he's alone with them. Sometimes Jesus prayed completely in private. Sometimes he prayed with his disciples. Sometimes he prayed in front of people. He prayed in front of people. A lot of times he would do that to demonstrate to them that God answers prayer. Luke chapter 11, he prays in front of a large crowd of people before he raises Lazarus. He says, you know, I'm not praying, Father, for my benefit, so to speak. I'm I'm praying publicly here so that they will see that you listen to me, that you are my Father and you respond. So he prayed in private, he prayed in public, he prayed early in the morning, he prayed late at night. He prayed long prayers, he prayed short prayers. Turn back to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6 verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the entire night in prayer to God. Sometimes Jesus prayed all night. Sometimes Jesus would pray just a sentence when he was hanging on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. Long, short, public, private, Day, night, Jesus' entire life was permeated and guided by prayer. Follow the course of his ministry all the way to the end. The last thing that we see Jesus doing is praying. John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. 
And then he takes them with him and he goes to the garden and he prays with them. He just began the ministry in prayer. He conducted his entire ministry in prayer. He concluded his ministry in prayer. We're told that right now, what is Jesus doing? He's praying. He's praying. He is pleading our case before the Father. He is arguing our right to take access to God, even though we don't avail ourselves of that access. Jesus is right there. He is praying for us. He's having a conversation about us, really, actually, right at this very moment. And the Spirit is translating our meager prayers so that God understands and hears because the Spirit and the Father are one in their love for us and their intention for us. And so Father, Son, and Spirit being infinite are right now having a conversation with each, with one another, about each and every one of us. That is stunning. That is stunning. Because prayer was, I would argue, Jesus' absolute highest priority, he guarded and he protected his time with the Father. I want you to turn back just one chapter to Luke chapter 5 and verse 15. In my opinion, I think that the greatest barrier to us growing in prayer is distraction. We we live in just a, a horrifically distracting culture. We live in a noisy, 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 busy culture. I brought up with me a little toy here. This is my smartphone. I suspect that vast majority of you own one of these smartphones. And, you know, actually just this morning I was thinking to myself, that's kind of a funny name for this smartphone. What does it do to the people who own it? Does it make you smarter or is it just the phone that stays smart and you get dumber? And, you know, me, I, I, you know the, I've noticed whenever I, I add an app onto my smartphone that that app insists that it have permission to alert me, right? Software update. And it's going to go bing, bing. You know, it's something really important. This is the latest, greatest software update, and you got to do it right now. And you know, it's bing, you know, it's just getting after me. Or a news alert, you know, Fox News, bing, bing, bing. You know, something's happening on the other side of the world that has nothing to do with you, and you can't do anything about it, but you need to know about it. You know, it's, a bang, it's just going at me. It's going at me. Or, you know, my Facebook friend that I don't know just had 12 cats, and you need to see the pictures. Bing, 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 right? Right, right? Or, you know, or Groupon says, oh, hey, they're free. Egg rolls in downtown Bryan, go get them, go get them, you know? Or if you're smart, you just put it in your pocket and you put it on vibrate, right? Because that's not distracting. (laughs) Right? You sit in a meeting, you can't sit on your phone, so you lay it on the table. So in the middle of your meeting, it can go, you go, oh, it's just egg rolls. Don't worry about it. Let's go back to setting our budget so our company doesn't fail. Don't worry about the egg rolls right now. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just everywhere. It's just in your face. Distraction, distraction, distraction. We must learn. If we are to grow in prayer, we must learn to rule out distraction. Read with me Luke chapter 5, verse 15. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to him, and he healed and, and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus had a lot to do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, save the world. It's a lot riding on Jesus. And yet he separated himself, he guarded himself, he removed distractions, he went to the wilderness. And if you look biblically, wilderness has a lot of uh, of symbolic significance, but it also has literal significance. It's a place where no one else is. 
where people can't get at you. You need wilderness. Okay? You need to find that place. It might be your back porch. It might be that you have a garden. It might be while you take a walk. It might be while you're in the shower and nobody can get to you. Or you're driving to work and you turn everything off. But you need a place where you can control and eliminate distraction. Eugene Peterson wrote one of my favorite books. It's called The Contemplative Pastor. I would suggest you read it, even if you're not a pastor. It, 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 for people who, who love God and want to minister to others, this is a wonderful book. And he said this. He said, I can be active and pray. I can work and pray. But I cannot be busy and pray. I cannot be inwardly rushed, distracted, or dispersed. Usually for prayer to happen, there must be a deliberate withdrawal from the noise of the day, a disciplined detachment from the insatiable self. That's good. You need wilderness. You need a place. And you need a time. Because we live in a very distracting, noisy, busy culture. Third, when Jesus prayed, he didn't give up. Jesus didn't quit. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Verse 1. Now, while Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. Don't quit. Pray at all times and don't lose heart. Saying this, in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Now, Jesus' point in the parable was not that God is an unjust judge. His point is this, persist in prayer. Don't read too much into the details, Jesus says later. He says, look, the point is this. God wants you. And more important than getting the answer that you think you want and need is that you are with him. And so sometimes God will say no or wait or whatever because he wants you to persist and persist and persist. In a few weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which I would argue is the most important prayer in the Bible. And in that prayer, Jesus himself persisted three times. He goes back to the Father and he asks exactly the same thing. So, why don't we uh, value prayer like Jesus? Why don't we pray like Jesus? Why don't we um, persist in prayer like Jesus? Jesus was so utterly and completely dependent upon his, his communion with the Father, and we see that example. Why don't, why don't, why don't we do that? And a lot of times we say to ourselves, you know, I just, I just don't have time. I really, actually, I really do value it. I just don't have time for it. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. I know you're fooling yourself when you say that because I say the same thing to myself. This week, I was preparing a sermon on prayer. And as I was working on this sermon on prayer, this little voice kept saying to me, you should pray about this. And I, I said to that little voice, 
you got, you know, you have those conversations that, that, that voice is saying something I just really don't want to hear. And I said, I don't have time to pray about the sermon on prayer. I have to prepare the sermon on prayer, not pray about the sermon on prayer. And I fought against it. And I fought against it. You know, and there's this battle going on inside me. Will I pray or will I not pray about a sermon on prayer? I don't have time. I just can't. I'm busy. God, we're fooling ourselves. We make time for what we value. Did anyone this morning have breakfast? Go ahead, participate with me. Anyone have breakfast? Raise your hand. Okay, pretty good. Pretty good percentage. Did anyone, anyone get up this morning and say, you know, I just so need to get to the worship service that there's just no time to eat? Anyone? Okay, so identify those people. Those are the people from whom you can learn about prayer. Right? They set something actually ahead of eating? Wow. If you value something, you will do it. This week, I I posted something on my Facebook account because I wanted to distract all of you from your important business, what you're doing. And uh, it's actually a quote by George Mueller. But the funny thing is, I didn't put George Mueller's name first. I didn't say George Mueller once said. I just put the quote. And so some of my friends thought I was talking about myself. Right? So as you hear this, keep that in mind, right? For more than half a century, I have never known one day when I had not more business than I could get through. Now, notice that first phrase, for more than half a century. And I'm like, I'm not even 50 yet. What are you, that's not me. Come on. That's the first clue. I didn't write that. For 40 years, I have had annually about 30,000 letters, which, you know, I don't have 30,000 unless you can't count like spam email. Then I, you know, I'll probably get up to 30,000. Okay. About 30,000 letters annually. And most of these have passed through my own hands. I have nine assistants always at work corresponding in German, French, English, Danish, Italian, Russian, (laughs) and other languages. Then as pastor of a church with 1,200 believers, great has been my care. I've had charge of five orphanages, also at my publishing house. Now people are cluing in. We don't have any orphanages here. Also at my publishing depot and printing uh, in circulation of millions of tracts, books, and Bibles, but I've always made it a rule never to begin work till I've had a good season with God. George Mueller was a, he was really busy. When he says, I, I had a good season with God before I started my day, that doesn't mean two minutes. For Mueller, a good season with God was an hour or two or three. And then he set about managing five orphanages in the congregation and 30,000 letters in a printing business. Mueller was busy. Jesus was busy. So, why don't we pray? Why don't we value it like Jesus valued it? First, I think we just don't understand what prayer is. And we just don't just consciously acknowledge the fact that what prayer is, is it's access to the creator of the universe. Prayer is access to the God who made it all. And he says, please, freely, boldly come into my presence. Prayer is Jesus pleading on our behalf with the Father, the Spirit translating what we say. Prayer is God speaking back to us in his word or through friends or through an impression on our hearts and our minds. Prayer is communication with God. It is the greatest privilege, literally the greatest privilege that we possess as human beings. Perfect, complete access at any moment in time when we want to be in the presence of God. And I think sometimes we just consciously say that this is a wonderful thing. 
I can't miss out. Second, we have been disappointed in prayer. We pray, we ask, and it doesn't happen. Other people get what they want, but we don't. We're like, I thought God was, you know, like this big cosmic vending machine. Prayer's the token. I put it in and ching, I get no. And we're disappointed and we're frustrated. And so we quit. But remember, Jesus didn't get what he wanted either. Make this cup pass from me. Make this cup pass from me. Make this cup pass from me. And God said, no, no, no. In a few weeks, we'll talk a little more specifically about why we don't get what we want when we want it and what to do about that. Sometimes it's simple. We just haven't been taught to pray. I'm not to pray because we haven't been taught to pray. I find that in the church, very few believers have actually been discipled where someone came alongside and said, let me walk with you and teach you and train you how to walk with God. That, that is actually the one thing the church should be doing. Right? Make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Teaching them to walk with God, love God with heart, all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and go out and share the gospel and make more disciples of all nations. That's what the church should be doing. But I have discovered the very few disciples or very few believers have been discipled or who know how to disciple someone else. And when they have been discipled, a lot of times this skill of prayer was completely overlooked. The discipleship is all knowledge-based. It's not relational-based. And sometimes folks who've been in the church a very long time realize this lack, this deficit, but they've been around so long, it's embarrassing to say, no one ever taught me how to pray, and I really don't pray well, and I really need to learn to pray. So whether you're old or young, it may be that you just need to say, God, I need Jesus to teach me to pray The church needs to constantly be talking about this and discussing this and modeling this for one another. It's the essence of our spiritual life, communication with God. And we have to admit, we just may not have been taught. A lot of times we simply don't realize how much we need it. As we're going to see in a few weeks, Garden of Gethsemane is warfare. It's it's a warfare moment. So Jesus says to his disciples, he says, watch and pray, be on your guard. Disciples don't know that they are entering into a battle, so what do they do? They sleep, and then they fail, and they abandon Jesus. Jesus is raised from the dead. He's with them for a few days, and then Jesus leaves. They are, they're, they're, uh, they're on their own, and what are the disciples doing then? Man, then they're praying. Look at them in the beginning of the book of Acts. Let's get, it, let's get together for prayer. Let's skip meals. Let's get up early. Let's stay up late. They finally clue into the fact that they are in the midst of warfare. And so it is with us. And we need to acknowledge, while we are on this earthly plane, until Jesus returns and wipes out all enemies, we are in the midst of warfare. Greatest resource we have, word of God, and prayer. So, how do we apply this? Uh, a couple of thoughts for you. First, I want to challenge you this week to find a quiet place. I've known friends who've taken everything out of a closet. They sit in a closet, close the door. Or again, you know, maybe it's your, your back porch. Husbands, find a quiet place for your wife. Where the kids can't get at her for a moment. Maybe it's she can leave the house and she can drive. Find a quiet place 
where you cannot be distracted constantly by the world. Second, give God time. This week, give God time. Just mark out time, appointments. Uh, Again, I I love, Peterson talks about this in his book. He talks about how the, the calendar is sacred. You know, if you say to somebody, I have an appointment, they leave you alone, right? Husbands, if you say, well, I'm going to have a date with my wife, they might go, well, you can have a date any night. Come on, let's go to the game, right? Got an appointment. Make an appointment. Guard it. If this is a beginning place for you, uh, maybe it's just a few minutes a day. You know, it's like if you've never run a marathon, don't sign up for a marathon tomorrow. Just walk. Same with prayer. Just walk. Find a quiet place. Set aside a few moments. Third, pray specifically and boldly. What I want to challenge us to do as a congregation is to get very, very specific in our prayers to God. And very, very bold. Let's stretch ourselves because God is able. As we close, let's take a few moments silently before the Lord. And what I'd like for you to do is uh, to simply pray like the disciples prayed and say, Father, teach us to pray. Father, don't leave us uh, in a year where we are today. Teach us to pray. Father, we, we adore you because you are great. You created all that we see from nothing. No one else is like you. There is no other God. Your glory is yours alone. We are amazed. We, we stand in wonder when we contemplate your knowledge of all things. Nothing escapes your notice. Even a sparrow falling from the sky, you can pay attention to all details. Father, we also confess we know that we have sinned and fallen short of your perfection. And yet in your grace and your kindness, you took the initiative to send us your son, Jesus. Remove the barrier, the debt of our sins, so that we could be restored to relationship with you. We thank you for that. We thank you for life. We thank you for your provision physically on this earth. We lay our requests before you, knowing that you're a good father and you hear our voice particular, Father, our request this morning is that you would teach us to pray. That we would grow in in our our understanding of how to communicate with you, grow in our, our passion, our longing to be with you. I pray that you would pour out your wisdom upon us. To you, the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or even imagine. To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day and enjoy prayer this week.